Welcome, one and all, to season four of Horror Palooza, the horror podcast that reads Sutter Kane. Do you read Sutter Kane? I read Sutter Kane. My name is Sir Ian Dangerous, aka your Uncle Frank, and you can find me on Twitter at Skinless Wonder and on Instagram at Sir Ian Dangerous. Now, for those of you who are just finding us, Welcome, and thank you for joining us, and thank you to everyone who's been sticking around this whole time and listening to all of our previous seasons. Much appreciated. Uh, And if you haven't checked it out yet, this is for all of you, I just put up a first-ever episode for Horror Palooza, a franchise retrospective on the Child's Play series. It's a great primer for the upcoming TV show, and I have to say, after watching all the films back-to-back, I really think the Chuckies are front to back one of the most quality horror franchises out there. And that that was not my opinion going in, by the way. So check that out. See why I changed my mind. It's a pretty good little show. So once again, it is the most wonderful time of the year. It's October, and that means it's time to drink pumpkin spice lattes. It's time to put up skeletons around that well even more skeletons i should say around the house uh spend way too much money on halloween masks and decorations did it and watch even more horror movies than normal see if you're new to the show i do this little thing every year where i watch 31 horror movies in october one for every day of the month i watch about them i write about them and then i come over here get in front of this microphone and i talk about them and i'll let you all know what I thought about them, but that's not all. You see, I can't just watch any horror movies that I want to. I have a set of rules that I have to follow because without, without rules, humanity devolves into chaos. And while that can be fun, I think we'll all have a better time if I just keep things organized around here for now. You see, I believe in encouraging myself and others to stretch out beyond the movies we all know and love. Those are great. We can watch them all the time, but We found them because someone took a chance on them at some point, and then we took a chance on them, and now we love them. So I made these rules up. They're completely arbitrary, by the way. I just made them up to force myself to watch movies I might not have watched otherwise. And the rules are as follows. I cannot watch any movie that I've seen in the last five years. So nothing recent uh, that I've seen. At least three of the movies that I watch have to be in another language besides English, foreign language films. Uh, I have to watch at least two films from every decade. It used to be just one from every decade, but I'm trying to make things harder on myself. So at least two movies from every decade, starting with the 1940s and before to the present. So the, the 40s and before, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, aughts, teens, and now 20s. It's 20 and 21 count now as well as a decade, so because there's a ton of good movies came out in the last couple of years, so that shouldn't be too hard to fill. But uh, two films from every decade. If I watch multiple films from one franchise, it only counts as one movie. So therefore, if I had watched the Chucky movies for this, it would have only counted as one movie, even though I watched eight movies. Uh, Of course, it seems like an obvious rule, but you'd be surprised. They have to be horror movies. In other words, I have to be able to defend them as being horror movies. There are some movies that are thrillers, and are they really horror movies? No, they have to be horror movies. I've got to be able to explain why they're horror movies. And I've got a new rule, especially for this year. 
for this year, I must watch at least five of those 31 movies or more must be directed by women. I must. I have to watch at least five female-directed movies this year uh, because that is something. It's it's funny if you go back and look at, uh, at women directing horror films. You've really only got a couple before the '70s, and then a few more in the '80s, and then there's like an explosion in the last 20, 25 years or so. So that's going to be a lot of fun to try to find some of those. Uh, and watch them. Obviously, uh, I've already seen a ton of them. But I've got to try to find ones I haven't already seen. So that's going to be a cool new rule for this year. Uh, for every show that I'm doing, I'll be going over about a week's worth of these movies, talking about them. Should you watch them? Should you avoid them? Their merits, the things I hated about them, whatever. At the end of the month, I will give my top three movies that I watched this season. Now, keep in mind, I, I do try to keep spoilers to a minimum. But I, because I like to go into horror movies totally blind. But there may be some light spoilers for these movies in the show. If I talk about anything that I don't think would be a light spoiler, like something that would be showable in a trailer for one of these movies, that kind of thing, I will warn you first. In other words, I won't spoil big twists or reveals. And if I do, I will always warn you beforehand. I might discuss how I feel about an ending, but I won't spoil what actually happens. So, you have been warned. If you want to go in totally blind to these movies, the, it's not going to be totally blind if you listen to the show. Just, just warning you. But it will give you some recommendations about cool ones to watch or ones to avoid. Uh, again, hit me up on Twitter or Instagram, Skinless Wonder, Sir Ian Dangerous. Let me know if I'm way off base on these opinions or if you totally agree with my assessments or if I found a gem you never heard of but are glad to have seen, etc., etc. Once again, Skinless Wonder on Twitter, Sir Ian Dangerous on Instagram. And as always, I will be giving some top 10 lists, some recommendations for movies to watch, all the streaming services. Stick around to the end of the show. Uh, let's see what I put up today. Uh, I think I've got a list of, of movies that I've had on Horrorpalooza before, what streaming sites they're on in case you missed them and want to catch them now. Uh, once again, as always, I want to thank my musical contributors, the Tiki Creeps, for that opening track, and 414 Beg for some sound design. Uh, 414 Beg is on iTunes, so is the Tiki Creeps. Uh, Tiki Creeps, you can also find them, tikicreeps.com. 414beg is on Instagram at the number 414beg. And then also check out his new album on Spotify. It's called Violence. Very cool atmospheric stuff. Uh, and, of course, if you haven't yet, please subscribe to Horror Palooza on your podcast app of choice. Hit that subscribe button. Leave a review. Rate me if you can. Share me with your friends. All that good stuff. You know how it works in the modern era of social media. And without any further ado, let's talk about some horror movies. Starting off with the very first movie for the marathon of 20 and 21, it would be The Dark and the Wicked. Currently, you can find that on AMC and Shudder. And I kicked off this year with a film I'm very excited about. Uh, the title, the log line, I had seen it. It described it as like a rural family being attacked by a demonic force. Uh, the fact that it was written and directed by Brian Bertino, who did the, the, the gut punch, home invasion film, The Strangers, all of those things made me salivate for this movie. And honestly, I, I pretty much got what I expected from The Dark and the Wicked. Uh, came out this year, 2021. Uh, he shoots this movie very, very wide in this gorgeous brown color palette. It shows you how isolated this family's house is in the Texas wilderness. Uh, though I did find it was kind of hard to get a grip on where things were 
in relation to each other, but it doesn't matter. The house and its surrounding buildings are the focal point, especially the large shed where they keep the stock of goats and sheep that apparently they make some money off of. And that's really what matters anyway. The house itself is almost a character, and the mood and atmosphere is oppressive at times, and Bertino has no fear of daylight when it comes to his scares. As we learn in The Strangers, and as you learn again here, you're never safe with this guy, and it's awesome. So basically the patriarch of the family is dying in a coma in bed. The mother is in failing mental health. And so the adult son and daughter have come home to be with their father and help their mother out around the place. And we get the sense that the two kids left home a while ago, and not exactly in the best terms. And the family drama is what fills the first third of the movie. And then things take a very nasty turn. And the two siblings start to realize that something is way, way more sinister than just poor health uh, that's going on at the farm at this point. So that's when the things start to pick up. Now, I won't go into more into it than that, as revealing of the dark wickedness is literally the whole point of the movie. The acting is extremely good with Marin Ireland, uh, who you might know from Umbrella Academy, Hell or High Water, The Irishman. Uh, she plays the troubled sister. Michael Abbott Jr. is the uh, family man brother. They both realize way too late that when their mother whispers, you shouldn't have come back, she's not trying to guilt trip them. I know it sounds like a mom thing to say, but it's not. I particularly liked how no one they cast in this movie feels really very Hollywood. They don't have Hollywood faces. They don't have Hollywood demeanors. They all feel like faces you would find in rural Texas, and it helps the atmosphere. It helps it feel lived in. Um, and Ireland in particular has a wonderful haunted quality to her. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing her in a lot more mainstream films in the future. Uh, she's even she's done in another movie I'm going to talk about later in this episode, uh, the seventh movie, actually, although she's given far more to do in this film, and she knocks it out of the park. The whole movie pretty much rests on her performance here, and she nails it. Uh, but ultimately, I can't really talk too much about this movie without delving into the third act, where the rails really get left behind. But I can say this, the pacing of the movie is definitely on the slower side, but suffocatingly so. If you like lots of jump scares and gore, this is not really your movie. It has some of that in it. If you like skin-prickling tension and creepiness galore, then this movie's more your speed. It does have jump scares. There are, but frankly, they're, they're a bit obvious, uh, and they're the kind in a few instances where the music and stingers do way too much work and are too obtrusive. Uh, and the actual jump scare itself isn't that effective. In fact, uh, of the two big criticisms I have of The Dark and the Wicked, one of them is the scares. Very few, if any of them, do anything that we haven't seen before, and oftentimes the most intense scenes are hampered by some kind of shoddy digital effects, which is all the more frustrating because many of them could have been accomplished fine with practicals, I mean, all the better and more visceral for it. And with the exception of maybe one or two moments, I pretty much saw every scare coming or I felt like the execution of them wasn't fresh enough. He's not really treading new ground with, with his horror moments here. Bertino isn't. Uh, though to his credit, many of them are executed flawlessly. Like, he, he's not doing anything new, but he's doing them all well. Uh, and there's a death that near the end of the film that 
genuinely unsettled me. Even though I had figured out what was happening before the movie revealed it, because Bertino played it so well, it really gave me the creeps. Uh, really, really turned my stomach. But horror people won't really find a whole lot new here. And I feel like most people will be dissatisfied with the ending, which I, I, this movie reminded me in some ways tonally a lot of her, like, like hereditary, not quite as intense as that movie gets, um, but certainly some of the familial aspects of it uh, and the overall oppressive tension. But where Hereditary gave you too much at the ending, it explains too much and goes on for too long, this movie goes in the opposite direction, where it gives us too little, ends so abruptly. And I, I'm, I'm all for an open-ended or abrupt ending, but The Dark and the Wicked might have erred a little too much on the side of brevity for the sake of that kind of, they're trying to go for that gut punch feeling and a sense of nihilism, which ultimately it doesn't really achieve because we're left feeling a bit unsatisfied. But that was my takeaway from it. To be clear, I, I think this movie is well worth a watch. It's very good. It just falls a bit short of how good it could have been. Uh, so for day two, I did change it up a bit. And I went with a bit of Sir Christopher Lee in Rasputin. The Mad Monk from 1966. You can find that over on Plex right now. Uh, it's hammer time. I'm sorry, I couldn't help it. Well, so this was not what I was expecting at all. Hammer horror film, 60s, but it's almost not a horror film, but more of like a melodramatic period piece recounting Grigory Rasputin's life during the time that he ascended from a peasant monk to the courts of the Tsar and the favor of the Tsarina herself. Now, luckily... I can defend this as a horror movie because there are several sequences which are pure, unadulterated horror. And of course, they do play Rasputin himself as a monster. So having such a beast as the protagonist automatically makes this movie a darker tale. And Rasputin historically was a drunk and a lech. And surprisingly, for 1966, they don't shy away from either here at all. Lee is having the time of his life playing up the wild mood swings and evil temper of the guy, and his intimidating presence here lends Rasputin an undeniable air of menace uh, and, and intensity as well. He's an, Lee's an excellent choice to play Rasputin for this reason because uh, not only because of the intimidation factor, both guys were six foot four, and Lee just absolutely towers over everyone in this movie, and he fills every doorway the way we can actually imagine Rasputin might have. Uh, Lee's beard and hair may seem silly in a lot of scenes, obvious wigs, obviously stuck on, but there are just as many scenes where the unkempt mop droops over his face in a way that truly brings out the mad, crazy look of the character, and Lee uses his eyes to pierce through this bedraggled mess and fixate on whatever he desires in the moment. So much was made of the gaze of Rasputin in his real life. And any picture you see of him, one of the first things you notice are his intense, deep sunken eyes with this fierce stare. And the movie takes this one step further and makes his eyes literally hypnotic. Uh, they make the assertion that Rasputin's power over people was not that of the run-of-the-mill cult leader, but an actual like superpower that he had that Rasputin asserted was given to him by God, and therefore he would do with it as he pleased, and what he pleased was to give himself whatever he wanted, whether that be uh, power or women or whatever. 
And it's very similar to how Bela Lugosi's Murder Legendra is handled in White Zombie, including some shots that could have been taken straight from that movie of just the eyes, the eyes surrounded by, you know, uh, blurred out background, look into my eyes. Now, it can be argued that the real Rasputin was closer to like a Charles Manson or a David Koresh type. He was a, a charismatic cultish leader type who just happened to use coincidence, guile, and religion to make himself one of the most powerful men in the land when he supposedly helped cure some of the effects of hemophilia in Alexei, who was the young son of the Tsar and the Tsarina of Imperial Russian at the time. So he used that influence from this apparent magic power that he had to gain incredible political power as he ended up advising the Tsarina on how to run the country while her husband was away at war. And all the while, he was dismissing ministers and leaders who were critical of him uh, and replacing them with sycophants and inexperienced incompetence. However, in, in Lee's movie, in this Hammer film, Rasputin is power-hungry and he's wildly ambitious, but in more of like a classic mustache-twirling villain way. Unlike the real Rasputin, who was once described as a French ambassador as having a stench like a goat, uh, he once bragged that he hadn't changed his underwear in six months. I mean, keep in mind, this is a guy who was routinely, he was having sexual relations with multiple different women at a time and was noted for his promiscuity and his stamina. And he's, he's that nasty, uh, which makes it even more impressive, I guess, in a way. But uh, on the contrary, Lee portrays him as being loutish, but still interested in the finer things. And once he begins to gain power, he dresses extravagantly, uh, you know, lives in a nice place, which is something that the real Rasputin never did. But uh, in both reality and this movie, Rasputin makes enemies, and this leads to his downfall. Now, here are some spoilers about a guy who dies 200 years, or 100 years ago, excuse me, or 1910s. Um, spoiler, uh, they kill Rasputin. So the real story of the death of Rasputin is, at this point, it's, it's pretty apocryphal. And this movie makes it gloriously over the top. But strangely enough, it doesn't make it as ghoulish as the real murder was supposed to be. So even though history has proven that, in reality, Rasputin was simply shot in the head, tossed in a frozen river, where his body was found by police days later, the legend goes that he was poisoned, didn't, which had no effect, shot, which had no effect, stabbed, beaten, castrated, and then, after coming back from all of that, thrown in the river, where he was still pulled out alive, but then finally died, or did he? Uh, it, there's a lot to work with there. According to legend, that's a pretty horrific end, and a lot of Rasputin characters in movies and, and comics and books and otherwise throughout history, have really played with that legend of his death. Uh, but this movie goes for some of that, but ultimately doesn't really do justice to history or the more fantastical and macabre legends of his immortality, uh, either of which would have been more acceptable than this mediocre end here. But, I mean, we're not watching this movie for historical accuracy, and frankly, I'm surprised they got away with the sexual explicitness and violence they did accomplish here, given the time period, so... You know, fair enough, I suppose. The real reason to watch this movie anyway is Christopher goddamn Lee, who is magnificent here. And you can tell he's having a blast. It's not often Christopher Lee gets to show off his dance moves, and he really does in this movie. It's like this and Wicker Man. The only times I can think of him actually pulling off some dance moves. 
Uh, and if you watch this for, for his performance, you're going to have a good time as well. And that brings me to day three, which is Jacob's Wife from this year, from 2021. You can find it right now on AMC and Shudder. And this movie first popped on my radar for two reasons. The good early festival buzz and the fact that it was a major role for one of the greatest horror actresses of all time, the exquisite Barbara Crampton. Now, it also helped that it co-starred underrated horror producer, director, writer, actor, multi-hyphenate, all-around genre godfather, Larry Fessenden. And I'd last seen the two together, albeit briefly, in, frankly, the much underappreciated We Are Still Here from 2015. Check that out. So this was one I had to wait patiently to watch until I could make it part of this horror marathon, and I'm glad that I did. Now, look, Jacob's Wife is not a perfect movie. It's not close, but it's not far either. What it is is a fun movie, an interesting movie. Uh, it's an unexpected movie. And best of all, it's a good vampire movie. I think it's fair to say that good vampire movies are few and far between. The last good one I saw was Only Lovers Left Alive, I think. And before that, uh, Let the Right One In, 30 Days of Night. Uh, those were years ago. But uh, this one is actually a very solid vampire film, going for more of kind of the Nosferatu visual look of vampires. Uh, something else i got to get out of the way here. Jacob's Wife is a feminist movie. That's not even getting out of the way. It's, that's the, kind of the core of the movie. Uh, and, and when you read the title of the movie, you may raise your eyebrows at that until you kind of read that closer and realize that kind of the irony behind the title is that it, it's, it's a movie about a church minister's wife who feels very unseen, underappreciated, uh, like her life has passed her by. And then when an old flame comes through town, uh, played by Robert Russler, by the way, who was the best friend from Nightmare on Elm Street 2, uh, actually has had a pretty good career since then. He's been in a ton of stuff. Uh, nice to see him still working. She finds herself in a tryst with him that is interrupted by a visit from the master, who is, the uh, best way I can describe her is like a, a Nosferatu by way of Michael Sarah vampire who, uh, who nips Barbara Crampton. And suddenly, Barbara's finding herself with more power and self-confidence than she's had in years. She's dressing more va-va-voom. She's talking back to her husband. And she's, well, she's also hungry for blood. Now, I know this sounds like a premise you may have seen before, but they do find new twists and turns that I wasn't expecting and a new interpretation of it as well. Larry Fassenden plays her husband Jacob as a well-meaning but mild-mannered guy. He's not a bad guy per se, but they've kind of fallen into a typical Christian household trope of the man goes out and does work and the woman stays home and takes care of the man's needs. She's serving him etc., etc., and Babs's character, Anne, is done with that shit. But Jacob's love, Jacob, he loves his wife very much and just wants his normal life back, and he figures that he's willing to fight for it. Of course, he's all willing to fight all the external problems for her. He's just too entrenched in his own view of the world to realize that he may have to change himself for her, and that may be the toughest fight of all, as he has no idea how to do that. He's trained to fight the hordes of darkness. After all, he's a minister. But letting his wife be his equal, that he doesn't quite know how to wrap his mind around. But this movie is as much about 
Jacob letting his wife have power as it is about Anne taking it and accepting it and understanding it. And, the, and, and also, Jacob's will to step back and let Anne make her own choices becomes an even bigger hurdle than fighting vampires. Because at the end of the day, Jacob unwittingly is fighting for the status quo. And for Anne, that means subservience and disempowerment. Vampirism is empowering to Anne, so fighting that is fighting her, even as Jacob's trying to help. Look, it's a great metaphor for confused allyship, where Jacob's saying he's trying to fight for Anna, but is unwilling to sacrifice his own entitlement for her. Um, And it's telling that the person that they cast as the master is actually a woman, uh, Bonnie Ahrens. And a scene late in the movie actually is given far more meaning with that knowledge. It brings another layer to the anti-patriarchal metaphors in this film, and it leaves even more to dissect and think about. This is a very enjoyable movie if you just want to watch some shockingly gory kills, because seriously, this movie has some... Look, it's got a very artistically shot demeanor, but then someone goes and gets their head ripped off with so much spurting blood that Sam Raimi would blush. Um, But it's also a good movie for its deeper themes, which it, it thankfully doesn't really come to a completely pat conclusion on. It could have easily been preachy, uh, pardon the pun, but instead it just presents a scenario and then lets us figure out our own conclusions. And of course, it's also worth watching because Barbara Crampton is amazing. She lets the camera show her completely unflatteringly at times too, foregoing vanity to humanize this woman and let us see her plainly and without any artifice. It's a powerful thing when, in an industry of vanity, a woman unapologetically allows us to see her age. Uh, And she also shows us an entire range of emotions. Uh, And probably never more powerfully than in the scene where she's starting to change into a vampire. And she looks in the mirror, because vampires can see each other in mirrors in this movie. And she asks, who are you? And what do you want? And we're not sure if she's talking to the master or to herself. So it's definitely worth a watch, especially if you like vampire cinema or are a fan of Facendon or Crampton or if you feel like there needs to be more feminist messaging in horror cinema. Uh, and if you're a pro wrestling fan, keep an eye out for a very mustachioed CM Punk who shows up in a cameo as a cop in this movie, likely due to his starring in uh, director Travis Stevens' previous film, The Girl on the Third Floor, so, which is also a feminist movie. So... Worth a watch, check out Jacob's Wife. Uh, Next up, day four, I went for Messiah of Evil from 1973. It's all over the place. It's on Paramount, AMC, Epics, Shudder. You can find it all over the place. And I went into this movie having really no idea what it was about other than a rumor that it was an underrated cult classic that had followed in the footsteps of Night of the Living Dead, which came out five years before, and Let's Scare Jessica to Death, which preceded it by about two years. And it was directed and written by the husband and wife team of Willard Hike and Gloria Katz. And they also had hands in American Graffiti and Howard the Duck, uh, which seems like an odd juxtaposition. So this movie takes place in Point Doom, California, right up the road from me, back when it was apparently an artist colony, and before it was one of the most expensive places to live in Southern California, and the home of celebrities like Barbara Streisand, etc., when you, when you hear people talk about homes up in Malibu, this is one of the places that they're talking about. It's, it's pretty much Malibu at this point. But in this movie, it's a desolate corner of the beach. It's way up the highway from down here in L.A. And 
a young woman named Arletty heads there to find out what happened to her artist father, who lives alone in a big house on the point. Big creepy house, by the way. And the movie wastes no time in setting up horror atmosphere with murderous weirdos hanging out, even at the gas station she hits in the movie's opening. And then she gets to her father's place, which is covered on the inside by her dad's striking high-contrast painting work. It looks kind of like an army of impressionist mourners at a funeral. And then she goes and tries to search the town for him. And all she finds are these unpleasant locals, lots of scenic beaches, and a crazy, whacked-out Alicia Cook Jr. from House on Haunted Hill. He's being interviewed by a dark, uh, a tall, dark, and uh, I, I call him counterculture handsome dude by the name of Tom, and his two groupies, Tony and Laura. And after old Alicia spills his guts about a blood moon, the locals becoming murderous, and some dark stranger coming out of the waves, Tom and company somewhat forcibly move in with Arletty at her dad's place, and then it's just a matter of time before they're picked off by the increasingly murderous townsfolk that uh, Alicia mentioned. So the strength of this film is the dreamlike, surreal feel that it has. The, the script isn't bad per se, uh, the directing could have been more on point, and the film might have been remembered as more of a classic than it already is if it was a little bit, I don't know, a little bit better. The script isn't bad, but the directing just isn't quite, doesn't quite, I think, do it justice. Um, but it's, I feel like it just missed the mark that it was going for. It doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of worthy stuff here. I mean, it's often tense and foreboding, uh, and there are, there are a couple of really good set pieces, one in a supermarket, one in a movie theater that are truly chilling, no bones about it. Uh, also, as, as whatever eye-bleeding Lovecraftian madness is enveloping the town starts to spread to Arletty herself, she has this breakdown, including vomiting bugs and self-mutilation, culminating in a full-body burn stunt that is genuinely impressive. Uh, look, this movie is very worth a watch. But just beware that it is very much of its time and of its budget. Arletty herself is stuck in, in useless chick land. She's, <laughs> she can't do a damn thing. Tom is straight out of an Austin Powers movie. And the hippie vibe is just very strong all over the place. It's, it's technically just not very advanced. It's, and again, likely that's due to the financial constraints that it had. There's that low-budget feel to the proceedings, and it's a 1970s, early 1970s, late-60s low-budget feel a lot of the time. The sound is sometimes questionable. The acting oftentimes is very questionable. But the overall vibe of the movie that it's able to obtain, regardless of these shortcomings, is its greatest strength. And the surrealness smooths over some of the logical flaws and inconsistencies. And I did mention Lovecraft for a second there. It's extremely Lovecraftian, not only in the way that it feels like a descent into madness, the idea of an old god coming out of the ocean, uh, unpleasant, physically bizarre local seaside townsfolk being affected by the otherworldly power, uh, the doom-laden, bleak ending, which had me asking some questions, actually, as I thought about it more, specifically about the character of Tom and who he really is. Well, uh, look, watch it for yourself, see what I mean. Messiah of Evil is definitely for horror fans who can appreciate older movies, hidden gems, and who <laughs> don't fall asleep easily. Uh, but if that's you, then absolutely check this one out. As the rumor I heard was correct, this is absolutely an overlooked hidden gem whose flaws do not outweigh its strengths. 
and which deserves a new reappraisal from a new generation of horror fans. Check out Messiah of Evil. Uh, again, with, with some caveats, but worth a watch. Number five for this year. On the fifth day, I watched Razorback from 1984. You can also find that on AMC and Shudder. And I found this movie initially... I realized I wanted to watch it thanks to a YouTube list, actually, of some of the most underrated, visually striking movies of all time. And this definitely qualifies. Razorback is gorgeous. The cinematography is huge and colorful and beautifully composed and shot. And the movie itself isn't bad either. Uh, what it is is very, very quirky. If you've seen... Any Aussie or Kiwi horror or, or genre cinema or, or Ozploitation, uh, you know that they tend to shoot like Hitchcock on meth. And this movie is no exception. Uh, you take the weird, non-sequitur spewing characters of Mad Max, the intensity of Dead Calm, uh, the overall feel of like Road Games and Next of Kin, and you'll get Razorback, which is also one of the many uh, huge killer animal movies of the era. There was, like, there was a ton of those that came out back in the day. And this is one of them. And in this case, the killer animal is, well, it's a giant razorback boar, which the movie, in true killer animal film fashion, assures us is an abomination of nature, a pure killing machine, a creature which exists only to kill and destroy, but uh, which Wikipedia tells me is essentially a feral pig, uh, one that's not indigenous to Australia, but it's considered an agricultural pest, and they're often just domesticated pigs or boars that have been let loose in the wild and allowed to breed. But the razorback of this film, this title, of course, is huge. Because it's a huge angry killer monster. It's the size of a Buick. And it starts off the movie letting us know he's a bad piggy indeed when he carries off a young baby boy, leaving his hunter grandfather screaming into the night in front of his destroyed burning house. So dramatic. And it is a hell of a start. But then we end up spending a while with a New York couple and his town of odd outback inhabitants for the next little bit of the movie. We jump from character to character. It's hard to tell who the main protagonist is for most of the movie, which is entertaining because we're never really sure who to root for and who's going to die. And the unpredictability of Razorback is as engaging as its brisk energy. It moves along at quite a clip even when nothing is really happening. And the vibrance and eccentric secondary actions feel like a George Miller or Peter Jackson film. Uh, intercutting, like For example, they intercut what could have been a perfectly fine scene with another irrelevant secondary scene that lends atmosphere in a way that adds to the bizarre quality of the world. For example, like uh, one of the characters telling a story in a bar, but they intercut that with a camel stealing a guy's beer. From There's a whole little mini drama going on with this camel and this beer over on the side of the bar. And that's not really surprising that, it, that the filmmakers do this, seeing as they're also from the same part of the world and giving it that same, uh, that overall aesthetic. And it's not, the movie isn't as slick as Miller or as loony as Jackson, but it definitely feels of a class with them. But it ultimately does suffer from killer animal movie logic, where the creature's actions are dictated more by plot convenience than by anything resembling actual animal behavior. Uh, the humans also act very illogically sometimes, whether it's following obviously dangerous people into more dangerous situations, 
Uh, smart people doing uncharacteristically dumb things. Uh, I swear, the hunter guy in this is the worst, best hunter I've ever seen. Uh, but it, look, it's the climax of this movie where things really go off the rails. Once we start fighting the boar in an illegal kangaroo, kangaroo meat factory <laughs> over the, in this over-the-top action sequence, complete with exploding boiler tank and whirring meat grinders, we are truly in a land where the beer does flow and the men chunder. Or is it is it women glow and men plunder? I don't know. You figured it out. I'll, I'll have to listen to that song again to figure it out. Whatever. The bottom line is, Razorback is very worth a watch. It's a crazy, unpredictable monster movie with some absolutely world-class cinematography, some fun and bizarre Australian atmosphere, and a creature that, in a few scenes, is pretty damn scary, too. So check it out. And uh, now I'm going to have that Men at Work song stuck in my head for the rest of the day. Number six, the sixth movie I watched this year, Banshee Chapter from 2013. You can watch it on Tubi. It's the only place you can find it. And unfortunately, Tubi does have commercials, which ruins the, the atmosphere of this movie. But it's worth a watch. And look, I make no bones about the fact that, in general, I'm not a fan of found footage films. There are several exceptions, but more often than not, I find the format limiting and illogical and often pretty unpleasant to watch. Um, and Banshee Chapter is partially a found footage film, but it has the interesting idea to intersperse the found footage into cinematic footage while keeping a cinema verite feel by usually shooting handheld with natural lighting in the actual cinematic parts. Now, I know some people weren't a fan of this style. Uh, they said, if it's not found footage, why is it shot that way? But I liked how it kept the feel of a found footage movie throughout of it, throughout all of it, without the awful camera movements or having to explain why someone was recording the scenes or how they shot what they were shooting. Uh, in Banshee Chapter, having this split format also helps add to the atmosphere as much of the found footage material is government tapes, research films, uh, security cam footage. You see, okay, back in the 60s, the CIA had a program called MK Ultra, which is actually true. And they gave people mind-expanding, altering drugs in unauthorized experiments without telling the people what they were giving them or why, which is also true. But someone at the CIA apparently also read From Beyond by H.P. Lovecraft and used an enhanced form of DMT to expand test subjects' consciousness to the point that they could communicate with beings from another dimension, which, okay, well, that's where the movie bends the truth just a little bit. You see, the plot revolves around someone today taking this enhanced DMT and picking up a signal. And then something bad happens, and it's up to a plucky independent journalist to track down what happened, what the government knows, how deep this conspiracy rabbit hole goes. Here's a hint. It goes deep. Uh, this movie is often genuinely creepy, if not outright scary. And there are some genuinely chilling and tense scenes mostly involved with the blackness of the shadows in many of the scenes that happen at night or in dark rooms. The most effective jump scares happen in these scenes, though there are a couple other similar jump scares that happen in brightly lit places and that are way less effective as a result. Uh, one of the major reasons to watch Banshee Chapter, though, aside from the blatant Lovecraftian aspects, I mean, they even mention From Beyond at one point in the movie and give a synopsis of it. Uh, Look, the other reason to watch it is Buffalo Bill himself, Ted Levine, showing up as Hunter S. Thompson. 
Now, look, I know the character isn't literally Hunter S. Thompson. It's an analog, so as to probably avoid lawsuits, I'd imagine, but it's as close as you can get without actually calling the character Hunter, even down to the line, buy the ticket, take the ride being used. So Ted, in this movie, gets to find out where the Buffalo Bill roams, and it's an absolute hoot. For a movie that is so deadly serious, so much of its runtime, and concerned with conspiracies and otherworldly presences of tragic love, having this element of over-the-topness is a breath of fresh air, but kind of a strange diversion. Uh, one wonders what kind of movie it would have been without Levine, but at the end of the day, the moments of levity that his character brings are some of the bright spots of the movie. And one of the other interesting aspects of this film is how it explains its supernatural phenomena. Okay, so DMT is an interesting drug, as anyone who listens to Joe Rogan bloviate about it can tell you. But look, the most interesting aspect as it pertains to this movie is its psychotropic effects that make people believe they are communicating with otherworldly entities. That's a real thing. There are myriad unrelated reports of people taking DMT and seeing very similar things communicating with what are known as machine elves sometimes, uh, or seeing living, th living things in the patterns that they experience while on a DMT trip. This is a real-life occurrence, down to there even being studies uh, as to the, like, if the descriptions of biblical angels in the forms described by Isaiah of the Seraphim or Ezekiel of the Ophanim, if those could have been the result of an ingestion of a DMT-like substance as the angels are described as having a uh, symmetricality not dissimilar to the shapes of the creatures seen in recorded DMT trips. And the similarity of the shared experiences is often shocked up to human brains being affected and our perceptions being altered in similar ways uh, because of our genetic makeup, much like there are commonalities to how humans react to other mind-altering states and hallucinations and whatnot. But in Banshee chapter, the similarities are made out to be not internal, but actually external a result of our minds actually being able to perceive more of reality and what is really out there for better or... F oh, come on, it's a horror movie. It's for worse. Uh, so, yeah, again, from beyond, very similar to that, the idea of expanding consciousness, but based in, as opposed to science fiction, in the case of H.P. Lovecraft and the psychic resonator that messes with your pineal gland, this is based on an actual drug. They're just dialing it up to a... A higher level. I liked Banshee Chapter a lot. It has kind of a limp ending, but it doesn't undo an hour and a half of solid runtime. The, the, uh, uh, the fun Ted Levine is having, the excellent performance of Katya Winter from TV Sleepy Hollow. Uh, she plays the journalist. Uh, or the genuine creepiness of the concept and certain well-executed scary sequences. It's definitely worth checking out. Uh, definitely, definitely check out Banshee Chapter, even if you don't like found footage films. Uh, it's it's worth a look. And finally, the seventh film for this episode, The Empty Man from 2020. You can currently find it on HBO Max. And if I had known going into Empty Man what I know now, I might have put it in a different spot on my list. I saw it very close, obviously, to Banshee Chapter and Messiah of Evil, two blatantly Lovecraftian movies, and I would have kept it further away from those two to allow it time to breathe because, slight spoiler, The Empty Man is the most blatantly Lovecraft movie I've 
ever seen that isn't directly based on a Lovecraft work. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that it's what the Lovecraft fandom wiki asserts would be considered Cthulhu mythos adjacent based on how this movie plays out. And obviously, a slight spoiler, I didn't know that going in. Uh, and it would have made me think about when to watch the movie a little differently because this is a Lovecraft movie. But at the risk of spoiling too much about that, I will hold off till the end of this discussion for some bigger spoilers because I need to talk about that when I talk about this movie. But The Empty Man was released in the middle of the pandemic in August of 2020 by a studio that did not know what to do with it. Uh, David Pryor a man with almost no real film credits to his name prior to this, pardon the pun, but decades of experience working with David Fincher, directed, edited, and wrote The Empty Man based off of the Boom comic of the same name, although he definitely made the film his own uh, and changed some major aspects of it. And you can feel David Fincher's influence all over this film, from the colors to the pacing to the angles to the movement of the camera. Uh, that, that is high praise Indeed, it's a damn good-looking movie. But test audiences didn't like the film, and they liked it even less after the studio made Pryor cut half an hour out of it. So the studio, again, Disney in this case, uh, they let him put the footage back in and released all two hours and ten minutes of it into the wild, where it died horribly between confused reviews, empty theaters, misleading and confusing marketing, and bad word of mouth. And even now... When I look up Empty Man online, the only place I really found it has a following is on Horror Reddit, and that following does seem to be starting to grow. It's already starting to become known as a modern cult classic and an underappreciated genre gem that needs more love. But the one thing I think is holding it back is the fact that if someone is not familiar with some of the specificities of Lovecraft, it can be a bit obtuse. Uh, for one thing, as I mentioned, it is long at two hours and ten minutes. It's not, look, it's not the extended cut of Lord of the Rings or anything, but that is a complaint I've heard, that it's too long. It feels too long. Uh, I, I ended up not minding it, but I can see how some people would feel that way. And one reason it might feel long is that it feels like a few different movies at once. Uh, the marketing, for example, focused on the cryptid aspect of this film. Uh, the Empty Man is, in, in his own way, presented initially as a cryptid. Who is the Empty Man? Why does he show up and kill you after three days if you blow on a bottle on a bridge, a la Candyman or Bloody Mary? And frankly, that is the weakest aspect and one that only makes tertiary sense even after finishing the movie. And also, it's something that if they marketed the movie based on that would really disappoint people coming to watch it because it's only the middle chunk of the movie that, that's about that. Um, so that's, it's, that's unfortunate. And the movie opens with a 20-minute sequence in Bhutan before we even see the title card. And that sequence doesn't get referenced again for most of the runtime. And then there's a lot of detective work in the middle where the movie becomes more, more of a procedural as this ex-cop tries to hunt down a missing girl. But in hindsight, to me, all of this added up wonderfully. And for the most part, I can see where it all fits in, even if I spent most of the runtime wondering about this wonderfully horrific thing I saw in the cave at the beginning of the film, which again, not really referenced again. It's this some sort of alien uh, Zdyslav Bixinski demon corpse thing, and it just stuck with me. It was never seen again. I look back now and realize that was the point. It's supposed to stick in your head. It's a movie that I, I can't wait to watch again, not because any twist 
or reveal at the end made me think differently about the happenings of the plot, which it does, but I want to experience that flow of increasing doom and dread again. The details the movie inserts about cults and viruses and reality and thought and memory and ultimately about identity. And also there is so much swirling around in this movie when it comes to philosophy. Like One of the things that really jumped out at me was the name of the high school is Derrida High School. And it's named after the father of the concept of deconstructionism, a fact which requires quite a bit of pondering after the end of the film and all the associated questioning of what is real and what's not, which occurs then, made me go back and think that that had a deeper meaning in the film. There's a lot to unpack there. And look, this is where the spoilers are about to happen because I can't wait to talk to someone else about the end of this movie. Not the very end, but the reveal of the creature, uh, for lack of a better word, for what it truly is. And while I won't say exactly what happens at the end of the movie, I will spoil one fairly major plot point, and it's one that will only make sense to people very familiar with H.P. Lovecraft. And that is that this movie has a literal Lovecraftian outer god in it as its antagonist. It's, it, look, it's visually nearly identical to how he's often illustrated. Uh, his name is directly referenced in the chance of an extremely awesome and terrifying and very Lovecraftian cult dancing around a bonfire. Look, if you haven't read about Lovecraft's character of Nyarlathotep, the crawling chaos, offspring of Azathoth, then I recommend doing so either before or after watching The Empty Man. When taken in context with that character's description, motivation, modus operandi, and intentions, Empty Man goes from being a decent horror film with some very strong moments to being one of the best Lovecraft movies ever made. Because all of the disparate parts of this movie gel so much better together when put in the context of that character's mythology. And honestly, while it does make the movie, as I said earlier, a bit more obtuse to those not familiar with the character, it makes it all so much better if you do. So go read up on Nyarlathotep if you watch Empty Man. Okay, spoilers done. Um... Just to wrap up Empty Man, it is going to be hard to top this movie for me this year. I absolutely loved it, which is more than can be said for the studio that made it, as it's not even on Blu-ray yet. Uh, allegedly, it's supposed to be released in January of 22 on Blu-ray, but that remains to be seen. And here's to hoping it continues to gain momentum as an underrated modern classic. So go out, give it some love. I, I, I openly admit it's not for everybody. Uh, hopefully with the caveat that I gave you with that, you will like it more than you otherwise would. Empty Man is awesome. Absolutely awesome. And surprised the hell out of me. I was not ready for where it went, but I absolutely loved it. And that's it for the first week of films. Uh, and I thought we'd just have a little fun on the way out of here today, seeing as streaming services have become so universal these days and so much cord cutting is happening. I thought I'd make a quick list of which previous Horror Palooza movies are currently on which services in case... You wanted to go back and listen to any of them, want a refresher of which ones I've, listened, I've watched uh, on the show. I, I have been doing this for years and years and years, but I've only been doing the, the, obviously the podcast for a couple of years. So I'll just do the ones from the podcast itself in case you want to refresh on which ones I've done before, where you can watch them. I'm going to give you that list right now. Uh, Twins of Evil. So starting with 2018, Twins of Evil, 
is over on Shudder. Really awesome little Hammer film, part of the Karnstein trilogy. Hold the Dark, really just dark, brutal, barely a horror film, but just so brutal. I have to make it a horror film. Um, feels it's, Imagine uh, No Country for Old Men in Alaska. That's Hold the Dark. That's over on Netflix. Well worth a watch. Very cool. Uh, the Girl with All the Gifts. Very unique zombie film over on Amazon and Hulu. Worth a watch. The Wailing, a movie that I didn't love at the time but has been stuck with me ever since and has gotten better in my mind over the years. Really creepy, messed up. Korean film helps to know Korean history uh, when you watch this film. And I actually read up on it after the fact and like it more now. Really messed up film. The Wailings over on Netflix. Creature with the Atom Brain, uh, classic movie from the 50s over on Daily Motion and Crackle. The Resurrected with Chris Sarandon. Great movie from the 90s. Uh, also an H.P. Lovecraft movie. Really well done one, too. It's over on Amazon. Terrifier, if you like just stupid, brutal, fun horror. It's over on Tubi and Amazon. Horrors of Malformed Men. If you like obscure, messed up Japanese cinema, this is for you, but good luck finding it. You'll have to rent it on iTunes. Really weird movie. Howling 3, speaking of weird movies from Australia, over on Amazon. Uh, Pie Whack It, very underrated, creepy horror film, cryptid film, over on Hulu. The Raven, a funny, a surprisingly funny Edgar Allan Poe movie. Really funny, actually, with Vincent Price, uh, Boris Karloff, Jack Nicholson, of all people. That's over on Amazon, but you have to rent it, I'm afraid. The Brain That Wouldn't Die, one of my favorite black-and-white classic uh, schlock films. Over on Paramount, Epics, and uh, Tubi, you can find The Brain That Wouldn't Die. The Gate, the classic from the 80s. Uh, over on Tubi and Plex. Winchester, it's a newer movie. It's over on Netflix if you want to check that out. Lights Out, I thought that was a really effective horror movie with a really cool critter. Uh, Hulu for that one. World War Z, big budget zombies with Brad Pitt over on streaming on Paramount, which has a lot of stuff I found. Wishmaster, just awesome. Feels like a throwback to the 80s, but it is a 90s film. Uh, horror film with a, a cool bad guy. Lots of really fun. Wishmaster is underrated. Very fun, schlocky movie. Amazon for Wishmaster. The remake of The Crazies from 2010. Fantastic movie. Horribly underseen. You got to go check out The Crazies. Uh, I, honestly, I thought it was way better than George Romero's original. It's really good, and you're not ready for how hard that movie goes. It's on Fubo, AMC, and Sling. Interestingly enough, if you are a cord cutter and you have Sling, you can find the crazies on Sling. Uh, the Asphix, weird old ghost movie. Uh, it's over on Shudder. Uh, excuse me, it was on Shudder. Now it's on Canopy, or you can rent it on Amazon. The Old Dark House, absolute classic. James Whale uh, with Boris Karloff again. That's over on Shudder and Tubi right now. Halloween, the recent Halloween from 2018. The sequel's coming out in days. It's over on Fubo, or you can rent it. The Wicker Man, the classic Christopher Lee uh, Wicker Man over on Amazon if you want to watch that, Prime. Uh, a Cure for Wellness. You can check it. It's a beautiful-looking movie, but uh, not the best movie ever made. You can rent that if you really must. Cannibal Ferox, if you really want to mess with your mind. That is a messed-up movie. Shudder has that. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. 
Tons of fun. You know what it is. It's, it's those two guys goofing off with all the Universal monsters. Have to rent it, though, I'm afraid. The Unnameable, another Lovecraft movie, but this one is probably one of the lesser ones. It's over on Shudder. Cool creature, though. Very cool creature. Wildling, uh, if you're a fan of Brad Dourif, it's a neat Brad Dourif movie, although it kind of falls apart at the end. That's on AMC. Pieces, one of the best, worst movies ever made. It's over on Tubi and Shudder. It is an 80s gore fest. And probably some of, some of the, like one of the most fun movies to get together with your friends, have a couple, and just laugh your ass off at how dumb this movie is. Sugar Hill, a really cool black exploitation zombie movie. Prime and Shudder, if you want to check that out. Frontiers, messed up French New Extreme. That's a rental if you want to watch that. And Mandy, of course, is on AMC and Shudder. Uh, hallucinogenic, heavy metal, Nick Cage. Slow, weird, beautiful. You have to... Uh, some people hate that movie, but if you love it, you'll love it. Moving to 2019 and all the movies I watched then. Scars of Dracula started with that. You have to rent Scars of Dracula, I'm afraid. Uh, you can find Creep, the 2004 one, not the found footage one. Uh, this is with Frank and Patente, uh, some weird critters in the London Underground. It's on Tubi. It's worth a watch. It's a weird little one. I think it's, uh, it's underrated. Not, not greatest of all time, but it's underrated. Worth watching. Uh, the absolutely bizarre Ken Russell's Lair of the White Worm is over on Prime and Tubi right now from 1988. Uh, that's just a weird-ass movie, and it, but it's still a lot of fun. It's so goony. I, I definitely recommend that if you want to watch something weird. Uh, King of the Zombies, if you want to watch something racist, Paramount, Epics, and Plex. Uh, of course, it's a zombie movie from the 40s, back when it was all about race. It's, it's not good. Uh, Autopsy of Jane Doe, on the other hand, is amazing. It's on AMC and Shudder right now. That's one of my highest recommended movies. That is just, it is so creepy. Uh, just well done all around. Highly recommend Autopsy of Jane Doe. Very underwatched one. Bad Moon is everywhere. Bad Moon from 1996 is on AMC, Tubi, Shudder, Plex. It is a great werewolf movie with probably the worst werewolf transformation scene of all time. It's unfortunate. It's a great werewolf movie until that point. But uh, yeah, just, just watch out. That, those mid-90s uh, special effects will get you. Uh, Hagazusa, a uh, very artfully done witch film. Uh, I wouldn't say it has an actual plot. It's, you watch it more for the atmosphere and the feeling, but it's, uh, it's definitely creepy. That's over on AMC right now. Overlord, Nazis killing zombies. Killing zombie Nazis. Uh, that's Overlord. Really awesome kind of action film uh, with Kurt Russell's kid in it. If you liked, uh, uh, if you liked him as U.S. agent over in Falcon and Winter Soldier, this is one of his first starring roles uh, for, for Wyatt Russell. Over on, uh, an Overlord, that's at Paramount right now. Pretty cool film, actually. Well worth a watch. Only Lovers Left Alive. Amazing vampire movie. One of my favorite ones ever. It's at AMC. Uh, that's, of course, speaking of superheroes, that's with Loki, Tom Hiddleston, uh, and Tilda Swinton as vampire lovers who've been around forever. Great movie. Next of Kin, I just mentioned that, the uh, great exploitation film. It's over on AMC, Shudder, and Tubi. In the Tall Grass, written by, uh, the, the plot was by Stephen King's son, uh, over on Netflix. Doesn't quite pull off its time travel stuff, but it, it is a, an interesting watch, at least. Uh, Possession. Good luck finding this one. What a bizarre, messed up body horror, uh, 
mental breakdown movie this is. It's over. Uh, the only place I could find it streaming was on Metrograph, which I've never heard of that streaming service. Otherwise, you're going to have to search around to find it. Not a lot of places will let you rent it. Um, it's hard to find, but it's well worth looking for. Uh, Possession's one of the, those legendary, holy shit, did you see that movie? Uh, Carnival of Souls, one of the great classic black and white movies, so ahead of its time. It's all over. It's on HBO. It's on Paramount. It's on Epix. It's on Tubi. It's on Shudder. It's on Plex. If you haven't seen Carnival of Souls, go watch it. They've been ripping off that movie for years. Carnival of Souls did it first. It did it best. It did it with no budget. It's amazing. Uh, Midsummer, very divisive movie from the director of Hereditary. That's over on Prime. Uh, great as a double feature with The Wicker Man, by the way. And then As Above, So Below, found footage film. Uh, you have to rent it. I don't recommend it. Uh, some people like it. Not me. Dig Two Graves, cool little revenge film. Uh, also, I believe, with Ted Levine over on AMC and Shudder. Cold Skin, creepy mermaid Lovecraft movie with a lighthouse. Hard to describe. Fun to watch. Kind of leaves you sitting there going, what did I, what did I just watch? Uh, AMC, Tubi, and Shudder for that one. The Lighthouse. Speaking of lighthouses, that's a, if you want to watch a lighthouse movie, go watch The Damn Lighthouse. That movie is a trip. It's over on Amazon right now. Probably one of my favorite Willem Dafoe performances of all time. And the movie that proved to me that Robert Pattinson can actually act. Great movie, The Lighthouse. So bizarre. And it will leave you wondering if you really like me lobster. Slugs, uh, another animal exploitation film from the 80s, 88. That's over on Tubi right now. What a goony movie that is. Pet Cemetery, not the original. That's over on Fubo and AMC, but the remake over on Paramount and Epics. Just don't bother. Go watch the original on Fubo and AMC. Suspiria, the remake of Suspiria is on Amazon. So amazing. How you go from, from taking the original Suspiria and somehow top it, I do not know, but they managed to do it. This movie is awesome. I freaking love the remake of Suspiria. So much going on with that movie. The Curse of Frankenstein, one of the all-time Hammer classics. It's on HBO. No reason not to watch that in the Halloween season. Uh, also from Hammer, The Hands of the Ripper. You can find that on AMC. Baby Blood. Only place I could find that was Canopy. If you have one of the people that has Canopy as a streaming service. Uh, Baby Blood, absolutely bizarre. French film, very gory, very weird. Uh, well worth a watch. Actually, it's, it's definitely one of those ones that no one ever talks about that's worth checking out if you can find it. It's, it is messed up and weird. Uh, and then The Voices with Ryan Reynolds. Oh, God, I wanted that movie to be better than it was. But if you're, if you're curious, you can check it out on HBO. Uh, Ryan Reynolds is a serial killer who he hears voices. You'll, you'll see. It's, eh, it's all right. Bug, on the other hand, is phenomenal. Uh, that's the Ashley Judd one, of course. It's uh, from 2006. It's on Epics and Tubi. One of the greatest losing their minds pieces you'll ever see. It's, it's claustrophobic. It's horrifying. Bug is awesome. Uh, Body Bags, which is an anthology film from uh, Mr. John Carpenter over on AMC, Peacock, Tubi, and Shudder. Let's Scare Jessica to Death, a great movie to watch in concert with uh, uh, Messiah of Evil, which I talked about earlier. You have to rent it, though, or you can watch it on Pluto with ads. Uh, Eli, another underrated film, I thought. It's over on Netflix, still on Netflix. It was a Netflix film. 
Uh, I can't tell you what it's about. I don't want to spoil it, though. I don't want to tell you what it's about. Very cool. Um, well, let's, let's call it an exorcism film. But very cool. Uh, El Dia de la Bestia, The Day of the Beast. I thought this was so obscure when I first watched it a couple of years ago. Now it's on Shudder. Now everyone can watch this insane Spanish movie about the apocalypse. Well worth a watch. And finally, The Girl on the Third Floor from the director of Jacob's Wife came out in 2019. It is currently still on Netflix. And then finally, last season, we had Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter. Absolutely bizarre movie from, uh, from Hammer from the 1970s. Carolyn Monroe, though. Got Carolyn Monroe in it. It is currently on Paramount and Epics. The Endless, great, uh, great mindfuck film from Benson and Moorhead, the guys who made Coherence and Spring. It's another movie that's just well worth a watch because you're not ready for where it's going to go. And then, of course, The Taking of Deborah Logan, which is a found footage film I actually liked. Very disturbing. On Amazon, AMC, and Tubi. The Stuff, another weird 80s film uh, on AMC, Tubi, and Shudder. Tigers Are Not Afraid, beautiful uh, Mexican movie about uh, cartels and what the effects of that on children uh, in Mexico. AMC and Shudder for that one. Phenomenal film. Cry of the Banshee with uh, our good boy Vincent Price. It's currently showing on Paramount and Epics. Not a great film, but it's Vincent Price, so who cares? 1BR. 1BR, fantastic film. Uh, last year, it was on Netflix and blowing up all over the place. We actually even interviewed the producer and two of the stars on the show. Go check out those interviews. Uh, it was really fun talking to all of them, and the movie itself was very good. Right now, you have to rent it, but it is well worth a rental. Very good movie. Uh, Dolls from 1987. Stuart Gordon over on Amazon and AMC. Cool little creepy uh, old dark house creepy dolls movie. Creeper than any Chucky movie. I'm going to tell you that right now. Just watch the Chucky films. They're great. This movie blows it out of the water in terms of creepy dolls. Chucky does a lot of things right. This does creepy dolls right. The Bride of Reanimator, the sequel to The Amazing Reanimator. This one, not as good, but if you like the same kind of goopy horror, this will deliver. It's currently on AMC, Tubi, and Shudder. The Lodge, really underrated, quiet, like A24-style film. I think it might actually be A24. It's over on Hulu right now. That's when you go into as blind as possible and just let the movie punch you in the face. Great movie. Loved The Lodge. Uh, An American Haunting, however, I did not like. If you want to torment yourself with that piece of crap, go watch Hulu and Epics. It's over on Hulu or Epics. House of Frankenstein, uh, really cool later era Universal movie. Have to rent it, though. Die, Monster, Die, one of the later Boris Karloff films. Really cool. Very, uh, based on Lovecraft as well, although they kind of go different places that aren't as great. But it's well worth a watch if you are a Lovecraft completionist. That's uh, on Paramount and Epics. The Color Out of Space, speaking of Lovecraft, with Nick Cage. Beautiful looking movie. Doesn't quite always land it, but well worth a look if you like Lovecraft. AMC and Shudder is where you can find that. Motel Hell. One of the great classic schlock films over on Prime, AMC, and Shudder. All I got to say is Pig Masks, Chainsaw Duel, Motel Hell. Check it out. Monstrum, a uh, pretty cool, more like an action film, but uh, with a giant diseased monster. That's a Korean film. It's over on Shudder right now. Don't Torture a Duckling. Uh, it's over on Voodoo, which is a pretty cool giallo. 
Uh, Brain Damage, amazing, amazing Frank Henenlotter film. Must check it out. So bizarre, so messed up. Uh, definitely not for the faint of heart or stomach. Brain Damage is great. Check it out on Tubi. The Invisible Man, the original. Claude Rains, 1938. That's on Peacock of all places right now. What does NBC have to do with that? Weird. La Llorona, the, uh, not the big crazy one. This is the more quiet contemplative one from 2020. It's on Shutter right now. Beautiful movie, but very slow paced. Evil Ed, uh, great bizarre uh, 80s throwback film. That's currently on Tubi. Bedeviled, which is a really awesome Indonesian film. That's on Tubi as well. V, which is a, a Russian horror film from 1967 from the, from the middle of communist Russia, and they were able to make a movie this whacked out. Watch this in concert with uh, Hexen if you want to have a good one-two punch. V, V-I-Y, V is on AMC, Tubi, and Shudder. I Bury the Living, a very underrated Hitchcockian uh, more of a murder mystery than it is supernatural, but well worth a look. It's on Prime and Tubi from 1957. Impetigor, another really cool Indonesian film. Very, they, they are not messing around in Indonesia. Uh, they're getting close to like France New Extreme at this point. Uh, it's on AMC and Shudder and well worth a look. The Killer Shrews. Yes, one of the all-time classic mystery science theater movies from 1959. It's currently on Prime, Paramount, Epics, Tubi, and Plex. It's everywhere. Because no one cares. No one cares about the rights. Just please watch Killer Shrews. Uh, it's awful and in the best possible way. Amityville, 1992. It's about time. It's just awful. It's uh, from 1992. It's on AMC, Tubi, and Shudder. I think it's going to be like the Killer Shrews in another like 10 years. Where we look back and just go, wow, that movie is just so insanely bad. It is actually, I guess, worth a look if you don't mind it being freaking terrible. Would you rather... Mm, the masterful Jeffrey Combs. Would you rather? Over on AMC. That's a nice, brutal, angry little movie. 976 Evil. Wildly underrated horror film. Directed by Freddie himself. Robert Englund. I don't know how this movie fell through so many people's cracks, but it is really... It, there's a lot going on with this one. I love 976 Evil. It's not a perfect film. <laughs> Just go, go into it knowing that. But it's great. Uh, it's over on Stars right now, randomly. May, which is a creepy little film. It's on Tubi right now about a disturbed woman. And finally, the new Invisible Man from 2020 is over on HBO. That film is phenomenal. Phenomenal. Definitely recommend the new Invisible Man. So that's a whole lot of movies. That's a whole lot of places to go see him. That was a long list. Hope you guys found a couple that you might want to go watch. Check out those movies. Hope to give you tons of possibilities to watch in this Halloween season. And there's lots more to come. I still have to watch all of my foreign language films. I've, I'm slacking off this year. I, I, I haven't even watched a single movie directed by a, by a woman. Well, uh, Messiah of Evil co-directed. I'm not going to count that. I'm not going to count that. I'm not taking the easy way out. No, I, I still have five movies directed by women to watch. So I've got my work cut out for me. I'm already seven down. Uh, and 24 to go. Plus, I plan on squeezing in the new Halloween movie in theaters. Antlers, which just came out, uh, or is coming out soon. I can't wait to watch that. Uh, Malignant, which did just come out, and I, th I think it's on HBO for now. I hope so, because I want to watch that. So stick around. Come on back for more of the 31 for 31 Marathon for 2021. 
Thank you guys for checking me out today. Check me out on Twitter at SkinlessWonder and, of course, on Instagram at SirIanDangerous. Like, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. Thank you very much, and we will see you next time right here on... 